So if you haven't been to the table in a while, um, we're in the middle of a sermon series on Ezra. And the story we find ourselves in with this journey through the book of Ezra is a story of people who were exiled, who were taken away, and everything they knew was destroyed, and then they had this chance to return with the blessings of the, of the people who were in power of them to come back and rebuild their city and, most importantly, their temple. Um, and we're looking through this book through the lens of what does it mean to rebuild? Like, what are we learning in this about the rebuilding process and reclaiming and restoring things that have been broken in our own lives? So for us, we see this story of the Hebrew people who, through many, many years of turning away from God and and doing things that were not a part of his plan, uh, he ended up taking them in a cycle of exile and destruction. Um, They didn't listen to the warnings that the prophets around them, like Jeremiah and Isaiah, were calling them to about coming back to God and were warning them of this impending destruction. It was just not believed. And so God allowed the Babylonian Empire to come in and uh, destroy Jerusalem and raise the temple and took many of the people into exile in Babylon. And about 50 years later, King Cyrus allowed some of them to come back. And in fact, he was a part of financing the rebuilding, not only giving them the permission to do this and giving them some of the treasures from the temple again that were in the Babylonian treasury, but also allowing anybody to be a part of this and donate to the the Hebrew people going back and rebuilding. And so as we've been following this in the sermon series, we've been following how they've dealt with oppression and how they've dealt with obstacles and how they dealt with um, perseverance in the middle of all of this. And now we're at a place where the namesake of the book, Ezra, actually finally shows up. Um, And we're going to take a look at that. We're going to take a look at what happens when the temple is finished and kind of see what that means for us. But to do that, let's start with a word of prayer. So God, we just come to you today. Um, We ask that you would be the God that watches over us right now. While we talk about restoration and rebuilding and what life looks like after destruction, Lord, be present here and speak in and through this community of your truth and your purpose for us. Amen. So in my late 30s, I decided that I needed to go back to school to finish my undergraduate degree. Um, and I wanted to do it in a very quick hurry. Um, I had some of a degree, but not a complete one. And so I went back with an interdisciplinary major um, that was focusing on like history and international studies. So I had to take a science-based course. And I w- was fine with that, but you know, when I'm in my late 30s, I'm like, this doesn't matter to the rest of my life. How can I find a way to deal with this in a way that... Um, integrates and is as efficient as possible with my major. I found one class that was both a history class and a science class, and so it would count for both, count towards my major and also count for that um, requisite class that I needed to take. And I was very reluctant to take it because it sounded the most boring class I'd ever heard. Um, It was American environmental history. And it just had nothing to do with life as I knew it. It had nothing to do with where my passions were. I thought, well, it's going to kill two birds with one stone, so I'm just going to suck it up and take this class. And it ended up being surprisingly one of my favorite classes in my entire return to school. 
It was one that I looked forward to being at, that I just relished the reading, relished the discussion. But what I loved the most was the way the professor set this up. And she said, what we're going to do is look at changes over time. We're going to look at a plot of land or an ecosystem or a, a system of being and track how that changes over time and what that does to the environment or the area or the situation. And it was fascinating to me. And for me, that idea of tracking changes over time became something that I integrated in a lot of things in my life. Like I looked at the changes in my relationships with my parents over time. I looked at even... Um, the, the way we interacted in my church, how that has changed over time. And for me, one of the biggest ways that I've looked at that is when I look at the Old Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament can be really problematic to me <laughs> as I go back and read it. But as I look at it as this progressive revelation of who God was with his people, and I track the change over time of what he is trying to build, of what God is working in and through the Hebrew people, it presents a different picture than these little vignettes. So as we're looking at Ezra today, what I really wanted to do is, was to kind of apply this to that system and track the change over time and tell the tale of three temples culminating with kind of the temple rebuilding in Ezra's story. And we have to start this, for me, with the story of Moses and the Exodus. Because the first time we see kind of like a dwelling place of God among his people started as the Israelites came out of Egypt, came out of slavery, and ex were in the Exodus and in the desert with Moses leading them towards their promised land, their place to be. And Moses goes up to spend some time with God on the mountain, and God gives him not only the Ten Commandments that we all remember and talk about, but he also gave him a very specific vision for a tabernacle, a dwelling place of God in the midst of the people. What he wanted to do and what he let Moses know was this was a very specific place and the furniture in it and the way it was designed was really had all served a purpose. Like there was the Ark of the Covenant where the, the book of Moses, like the, um, the Ten Commandments went. There were lampstands, there were tables, there were specific draperies and specific sizes and measurements. And Moses was given this whole download that included things like this guy is really good at woods craftsmen, so you need to tap him to do this. And this person is really good at embroidery. You need to tap them to do that. And there was this incredible picture of what God wanted to build for his presence. God also instructed Moses, go back to the people and let them give. He didn't say, make them give. He didn't say, everyone is supposed to give this amount. He said, just give them the opportunity to give, to build my dwelling place. And so Moses did. And what ended up happening is the craftsmen had to come to Moses and said, you need to tell the people to stop. We have more than enough. People donated wool and goat skin and fibers and gold and silver and wood. And what was created was this like two-story building with an outer shell that had all these bits of gold and silver and amazing pieces in it that lived in the community. In fact, some rabbis say that it was actually in a place in the in the in the in the 
gathering, because it wasn't a city, it was a mobile group of tents, that it was in a place where every tent could see it. And this presence of, this um, place for God to be was created and crafted in such a way so that it could be taken down and moved to the next place and then reset up. And they put it together and they dedicated it. And when they did, God's presence came in that place. It was a cloud that was visible from everywhere. And so much so that when the cloud was lifted, everybody knew it's time to pack up because it's time for us to move on. It was God's presence, visible and very there among his people. If we flash forward a number of years, Israelites get into their promised land. They begin to take up shop there, eventually get a king. There's Saul, and then there's King David. And while he's there, the second temple begins. David has a vision of taking God's dwelling place from being something that has moved and moved and is temporary to making it be formal and be built and solid where everybody can see and people can come and worship. Unfortunately, God says, David, you got too much blood on your hands, so it's not going to be yours to build, but your son will build it. And David begins to make plans. David doesn't just envision an exact replica of what was. He has a progressive vision of how this can grow. And he begins to lay aside the things that need to be there for the temple to be built. And Solomon was able to enact this. He was able to build this grand temple to their God. And similar to the temple or the tabernacle before, people gave to this process. One of the most amazing stories is that the queen of Sheba comes to visit because she's heard about Solomon's wisdom and she talks with him and realizes what an amazing wise man. And then she just bestows on him vast amount of riches, timber and gold and silver and all kinds of things that then get used in the construction of this temple. So not just the people in the community, but people from outside are donating and giving. Again, this vision for a place for God to dwell is expanding and growing. When Solomon's temple was finished and they dedicated it and Boy, did they dedicate it. There's a whole list of how many rams were sacrificed and how many sheep were sacrificed and all these things, and it was, it was a thing. I, I think it would have been quite messy, but <laughs> that's just me. But when it was dedicated and the sacrifices were made and the worship came, God's presence again descended into this temple. And the, it was so much so that the priests were overwhelmed by the presence of God. In response to that, they could only sing, the Lord is good, his love endures forever. So again, like what we saw before, but in this expanded state, this permanent home in the promised land, we see God's presence in the midst of his people, a visible, tangible presence and as we track this through line, we can understand like how devastated the Hebrew people would have been when this temple was destroyed. Because at its very essence, it represents God being present in his people. Him being for them. His love enduring forever. But because the Hebrew people turned away, God led them into exile. 
and the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. So fast forward to third temple. Um, about 50 years after this destruction, the exiles who were in Babylon were able to return and rebuild the temple. But there's something different about this story. One of the things that you see is the desire to recreate what was. They were trying to recreate this place that they had known God's presence to be. We see a lot of similarities in this rebuild with the other two temples. But it's not quite the same. Well, let's track them. First of all, let's look. From the king down, we see that people gave freely. Not just the Israelites, but also the people who were the, you know, the Babylonians where they had been held captive or where they had been taken into exile. Those people also gave freely to the rebuilding of the temple. They gave both to rebuild and to enable worship there. And as we read through this book, we also see that craftsmen are named and returnees are named. So again, people are being called out by name as contributing to this process. And we also see that it wasn't an easy process. A lot of people sacrificed to be a part of this build, living, leaving the homes that they'd known and working hard against opposition and suspicion to work on the rebuilding process. And it took many years. But finally it was finished. And it became a huge time of celebration. The people there made big sacrifices Again, a lot like in the time of Solomon, there were a lot of bulls and a lot of rams and a lot of sheep. Again, must have been messy. But they had great joy in this. They celebrated the Passover, remembering again the goodness of the Lord. But guess what happened? Nothing. No presence. No visible, tangible presence of the Lord in this temple which is interesting because it seems like God made every way possible for them to come back, for them to rebuild. So why not be present? I think this is a really valid question. God moved the hearts of four kings at least to make this return and rebuild possible. So what did the people miss? I want to trace the through line again, but instead of looking at the temples, I want to look at what the prophets say. Let's start with Abraham. When God told Abraham that he was going to be the father of a nation, God laid down a basic vision. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that through you all the nations of the world can be blessed. God is planting a seed that his presence and his guidance isn't to stay contained, but it is to move in and through Abraham's descendants in order to reach the world. The purpose of the blessing was the movement to others. It was the foundation of the presence of God. And if we look at the prophets that were speaking to the Hebrew people right before and in the middle of the exile, God spoke to them again and again, reminding the people of this initial vision and broadening it. Let's look at Isaiah 56. Like sometime go in and take a read in it. It's a very fascinating scripture. Also the scripture that Jesus he uh, quoted from when he turned over the temples, the, the tables in the temple, and he said, my house shall be a house of prayer to all nations. This is where he was quoting Isaiah 56. 
And in there, he's speaking to his people and he's reminding them to work for justice and follow the way of the Lord. And then he says, to the people who have been traditionally excluded from the temple, the foreigners and the eunuchs, that God's temple is for them as well. No longer can they say they're excluded or forgotten or fruitless because God said, my house belongs to all people and all nations. No one gets left out. And if we look at the prophets and what they were saying during the exile and the return, we see this theme built on. God is calling his people to see a bigger vision than just a temple. One of my favorites for this is Ezekiel. Ezekiel has this amazing vision. He has a lot of visions. A lot of them I'm like, really, Ezekiel? But one of them is really fascinating. God's taking him through the temple again, showing him measurements, showing him where things should be, things that should be celebrated, things that should be done as it is being rebuilt. And then he says, look, what do you see? And from the altar flowing out from the temple is a river. And this man takes Ezekiel down a little distance, and he says, how high is it? And Ezekiel's like, my calf. And you're like, okay. So they go down a little more distance. How high is it? Well, it's in my knee now. And then go along a little more distance. What's it? It's at my thigh. And pretty soon, Ezekiel's like, it's too big for me to swim in. And this river flowed from the temple into swampland and brackish areas that had become stagnant and dead. And instead, they became teeming with life. And alongside the, side, the banks of this river were trees that had fruit in every season. And the leaves were for healing. And this is echoing a story that we see in Revelation, which has that same vision saying, these trees, these leaves are for the healing of the nations. And what we're seeing is that God is through his prophets painting a picture and calling his people to the possibility that is bigger than what they had just envisioned. The exiles wanted to recapture the glory of the past presence of God to get back what was taken. But I think they were kind of missing the point. Their own prophets kept reminding them of this bigger vision, and yet they persisted in just rebuilding what had been, rather than building into and entering into the what could be. They missed that the temple isn't just about a building It's about a movement that changes hearts and lives, and it is about a community with God at the center with wide open doors and a calling to bless everyone everyone around. God kept trying to get his people to have this heart change and grow into this, and through the prophets, he kept calling this during the continued return from exile. And one of the ways he started to do that was with a man named Ezra. About 60 years after the dedication of the temple, our man Ezra comes on the scene. He's called by the current king, Artaxerxes, to take some Levites and priests back to the temple, as well as taking some gold and some items in order to make sacrifice. Some things you should know about Ezra. He is a Torah scholar among Torah scholars. He knows the Hebrew scripture inside and out. And he is of a priestly lineage. In the scripture, it traces it all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest. Moses' brother, like way back in the beginning. 
And he expresses this great joy about being able to bring people together to come back and teach the people the way of the Lord. It seems like what is at his heart is to change the hearts and the lives of the community. He wanted to help this community grow with God as its center. But even as he came, he didn't entirely get it right. Um, I'm just going to put a plug in for coming next week for Pastor Richard's sermon because he gets to tell you some of the um, really interesting sides of Ezra. Um, So wait till next week. But Ezra had zeal and vision. Like he had an idea of what he thought was supposed to happen. But he still missed the bigger call of God, of what could be. And this is kind of rough for me to think about. In all the times I've been through, like tearing down and rebuilding, I found it to be an incredibly tough and vulnerable process. And if these people with this kind of pedigree and this kind of presence of God and this kind of calling are missing the mark, like what hope do I have in this? But in and every time I've been rebuilding, I keep coming back to a verse in Jeremiah. Probably not the one you're thinking of. But Jeremiah was a prophet who prophesied during the time leading up to the exile and the exile happening. And there's a verse in Jeremiah 31 that struck me and has never let me go. I put it up here in two different ways, the NIV and the message, so we can kind of get some facets of this and see a little bit of the shakedown of this. But this is the verse. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, to overthrow and destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And I really like how it says in the message, in the same way that earlier I relentlessly pulled up and tore down and took apart and demolished, so now I am sticking with them as they start over, building and planting. So the hope we have is this. God is with us in this entire process. All of it from things falling apart to sitting in the rubble through dreaming of another way, through the waiting and the grieving and the preparation and the hard work and the tough growth. God is with us. God is actively a part of this process. Sometimes we are rebuilding because of something that was done to us. A betrayal or abuse, a being let down or a rug pulled out from under us. Sometimes we rebuild because what we have doesn't fit anymore. The faith we grew up with as a child has to shift and fit who we are as an adult. Sometimes this is deconstruction. Sometimes the things have to be torn down because they are no longer healthy and they no longer bring life. Imagine a place of worship being torn down because it no longer brought life. The reality of the Hebrew people in this moment. Whatever happens, God is involved in the process. And it is a continual process. Things are rebuilt, things are torn down. Things are planted, 
things are uprooted, things are grown, things are destroyed. It is always moving. Life is full of moments where we're being uprooted and full of times where we put our backs into it and rebuild and replant. And through it all, the structure isn't the point. It's moving into the possible that God has for us. That is. No matter why we are rebuilding, this restoration requires change. If we rebuild exactly what was, we remain stagnant and our lives and our world become defined by the structure and the exact replica and the nostalgia for what was. And this isn't what God has in mind. Instead, I believe that God wants to challenge us through this process of demolition and rebuilding to grow in compassion and capacity and understanding because God is challenging us to enter in and be changed in our hearts, in our habits, in our minds, in what we do and how we think. God is in this change as we fully embrace this process and enter in. God brings healthy growth and healing and works for the restoration of all of us and works with us in the restoration of all things. The thing is, we shouldn't be rebuilding what was just as it was. We need to build what could be. Look with the vision ahead. And I think this is where the exiles missed it. They lived in the memory, not in the promise. They wanted exactly what it had been because it didn't really require them to change anything about the way they interacted with God. And through the rebuilding processes, their hearts weren't entirely changed. But God wanted them to grow, to be changed by this time in exile and want more and want what this promise was, what the possibility was. And the same is for us. Restoration isn't about staying the same. It's about becoming more, growing in and through the pain of being torn down and uprooted and laid to waste and coming out the other side more fully who we were created to be, part of a movement of changed hearts and lives and a community of people with God at its center, with wide open doors and a calling to bless and restore. Let's pray. God, I think all of us have places where things have been torn down or destroyed or broken. Be fully present and walk us through to the change so that we can fully step into your vision of what can be. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to listen to what the Spirit is doing and to walk in that. Amen.